Hello there. The comprehensive Kenobi review is here today on the Nerd by Word, so saddle up your Banthas, baby, because we're headed back to Tatooine. Again. Welcome into the Nerd Byword, the only podcast that is truly one with the Force. On today's Byword Big Talk, we'll be sharing our complete review of the Disney Plus series, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But first, it's time to keep you apprised of all things nerdy in... Nerd News! Dave, he just can't quit him. I, I would like to quit him, but Marvel won't let me. Jesus, Mary and Joseph... So it turns out that uh, Marvel is uh, launching a uh, new volume of adjectiveless Spider-Man uh, with uh, Spider-Man number one. And the creative team for the October releasing first issue has turned a few heads already online. Uh, turns out that first uh, up is returning Spider-Man artist Mark Bagley, who I would say is about legendary in Spider-Man circles at this point, being the main artist for Ultimate Spider-Man for all uh, ever. So uh, he he's probably uh, in the top five most popular, most uh, acclaimed Spider-Man artists. So all good so far. More Mark Bagley uh, is never a bad thing. But then... Uh, there's the, the writer that is returning to Spider-Man after having a stranglehold on Amazing Spider-Man for what seems like half of my life, uh, and that is writer Dan Slott, a divisive writer when it comes to the Spider-Man title, to say the least. Now, I'll, it's probably fair to say that uh, Dan Slott has... Uh, had some very good Spider-Man stories, fantastic stories even, uh, but then he's also had a uh, long string of middling, uh, at best, uh, Spider-Man stories, and the fact that he had a stranglehold on the title for so long, I think has made a lot of Spider-Man fans feel in retrospective like his run wasn't all that and a bag of potato chips. Um that then there is the the sort of like announcement tagline, which is basically that the you know it's the goal of this title is to be the end of the Spider Verse. Um, considering how popular this concept has become, um, and how many Spider Verse related um, characters are running around these days, it seems um, arguably maybe a, a strange decision to launch a title. Uh, that is, you know, going to supposedly end the Spider-Verse. I can't imagine that uh, Marvel is willing to, you know, let go of characters like, for example, uh, you know, Spider-Gwen. Oh, she's going by Ghost Spider these days or or Spider-Punk or any number of these, these really, you know, neat Spider-Man adjacent characters. So um, it seems a little disingenuous right out of the gate here. I'm not quite sure how to feel about this one because on the one hand, more Spider-Man seems like a good idea. More Mark Bagley on Spider-Man seems like a good idea. But the, the dance slot of it all makes me question whether this is necessarily something I'm going to pick up. Chris, uh, as the, the epic uh, Peter Parker lover of our duo, how do you feel about this one? Yeah, I mean... Um... It's it's Dan Slott writing Spider-Man. Um, we've detailed in recent weeks like the strangeness that is the Dan Slott run on Spider-Man. Um, I have more particular, <clears throat> you know, indictments of him for what he's done with Franklin Richards. Um, and that makes me um, apprehensive. Um, I mean, the, the going theory is that he did not want to play ball with the X line, the X office. And so he completely retconned Frank, uh, Franklin Richards X gene because he simply didn't want to have to worry about the continuity there. That being said, this is going to run concurrent with Zeb Wells's run, which I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed um, so far. No surprise because I'm a big Zeb Wells fan. Um, it's interesting because 
this is, you know, a B book. And famously, I, I really enjoy the B books sometimes a great deal more than ASM. So I'm excited to have two concurrent Spider-Man titles. It's been sorely missed since they bagged uh, Spectacular. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably going to read it simply because it's a Spider-Man book, but I can already tell by the art that was solicited. We're going right back to all of the shenanigans from, um, from the slot era, the overly techie Spider-Man suit, the neon colors into the suit. And it just feels like here we go again. Um, and, and then, you know, this, for me, I don't. I don't know what the wide consensus is. For me, the the idea of Spider Verse is great. The execution of it on the comic book side, not so much. Um, there were offshoots and like side titles that I really enjoyed. Spider Girls or Spider Women or something like that was a really fun title. Um, but like the, the execution of it, the first Spider Verse was pretty good. Spider Geddon was very meh. And so we're going back to this well again. This this is coming out of the events of Edge of Spider-Verse, I think, is the event that's coming up or something. Um, so we're just going back to this well again, and I don't know how well it's going to be executed this time. Um, so, I mean, that being said, I was like, I'm going to read it, but I don't have exactly high hopes. And I will say that, uh, you know, the, the techie shenanigans, the neon color and all the techie stuff, that seems to be more... Um, that seems to be more Zeb Wells' fault. Uh, my understanding is that this series is supposed to tie into to Wells' um, Amazing Spider-Man run. And from my understanding, the suit that we're looking at here uh, in that preview is is one that he is getting from like Norman Osborn or something. So in fairness, this one, you know, going back to the well, as you say, might not be entirely Dan Slott's fault with this side title since he does have to tie into the larger Amazing um, title. So, yeah, but one way or another, I'm not, you know, I just, I'm very iffy on this whole situation, but I think a lot of Spider-Man fans probably will be. No, it's just really like, and this is, if there's one thing, and this is not something I would put on Zeb Wells, is something that you and I agree upon, is like, I, I, I lay the blame mostly for Spider-Man the past 15 years on editorial and like those constraints and they won't let him evolve and won't let him grow up and won't let him progress and so going back to Dan Slott seems like more of the same and par for the course, unfortunately. Yeah, that's probably fair. I will say, I will say, in fairness, I do like how Dan Slott writes the dialogue and the quips. It's just like the storytelling and the plots are are very lackluster, except outside of Superior. So Chris, your uh, new story this time is actually one I can talk about because I went online and saw this yesterday. Uh, this is actually quite exciting what have you got so without a doubt the most secretive mcu film in recent memory precious little details about black panther wakanda forever have officially been released uh the most buzz around the sequel to the 2018 smash hit has been surrounding star Letitia wright's vaccination status persistent rumors however have swirled about the inclusion of the iconic iconic namor the submariner in the film Furthermore, numerous posts have claimed that Ryan Coogler and company have tweaked the origins of the character, moving the location of the fictional Atlantis somewhere off the coast of South America, thereby making the Atlantean people and culture distinctly Mesoamerican in nature. Recent leaks of merchandising for Wakanda Forever not only features rights Shuri and Denai Gurira's Okoye, but also Namor, as portrayed by the as-of-yet unconfirmed but heavily rumored Tenochtitlan and classic Atlantean villain Atuma. The designs of Namor and Atuma, while paying distinct homage to their comic book origins, are also heavily influenced by presumably Mayan culture. While Atuma's skin tone is notably azure in color, perhaps an Easter egg to that arm we saw in Ms. Marvel, Namor's is very much not. This could be attributed to his background of being mixed race, human, and Atlantean. Speculations are further running wild, as Namor is also one of the most well-known characters in the Marvel Universe to be a mutant. Whether or not his expected inclusion in this film will serve as a trapdoor for the introduction of the X-Gene remains to be seen. A good deal of apprehension surrounding the introduction of Namor into the MCU has to be owed towards his DC counterpart and the smashing success of Jason Momoa's Aquaman. 
Now, if you know anything about Namor as a character, you know how distinctly different he is from Arthur Curry. But if these rumors are indeed true, not only does it provide further distinction, but it also includes a culture, a history, and a mythos that has been sorely left out by the big two. Yeah, see, I I think this is actually a really, really smart idea. Um, as you pointed out yourself, you know, um, Aquaman, who who would have ever thought Aquaman beat the Submariner to the big screen of, of all characters? And and so when people um, you know, think uh, you know, King of Atlantis and all of that, they they are gravitating towards, you know, this vision of Jason Momoa's Aquaman. And so um to to kind of go down the same road as far as like the basic setup of the situation, probably not a good move. Giving it a distinctive uh, cultural flavor and, and and giving it a whole different vibe, I think that's a very, very good idea. Atlantis, um, in the in I think in both the big two, has never been particularly based on uh, or associated with any actual uh, culture. Um, so this has given, you know, writers, I think, a lot of, uh, and artists too, a lot of freedom to kind of like imagine what this underwater culture may be like. And that that has also bred, I think, a huge amount of inconsistency over the years with you know uh, what what people do with those uh, with those cultures. Now I remember Aquaman, I think, went through like a big magic phase there for a while, where it was basically like high fantasy but under the water, and then it's had more science fiction tinged elements, and it's just kind of all over the place. I, I think kind of rooting Atlantis into something that is familiar to a certain extent is actually really smart. Plus, I would say the the look, if it's a leak or if it's something fan-generated one way or another, it, it, it looks very, very cool and distinctive. And it's still recognizably Namor, uh, which I think is very, very cool. So I, I'm actually... I'm cautiously optimistic about this notion. Now, when I originally like read the leaks that there's going to be like, you know... Um, mesoamerican culture kind of baked in i was like eh, i don't know man that seems like very very different from from what namor is like in the comics but but dude it, it, it really works at least visually so far so yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to this one man yeah i'm really really excited um <clears throat> as we're recording thor love and thunder comes out this week and um so who knows you know what's going to be introduced there as far as different pantheons of gods and everything um <clears throat> I, it's really funny because a couple of months ago, um, you know, our fans know what a big fan of like mythology and everything that I am. And, and I kind of made the observation of like, you know, Mesoamerican pantheons and deities are like so like left out in, the, in like pop culture. Like we don't see near enough, you know, Quetzalcoatl and, and you know, uh, things like that, things of that nature, Aztec gods, Incan gods, Mayan gods. We don't get near enough of that. I mean, like, we had the Emperor's New Groove 20 years ago and, like, never really tapped into anything, like, that is really, really ever-present. Certainly, when you compare, it's, it's ridiculous when you compare it to, like, the Greco-Roman pantheon or, you know, the Norse pantheon, like, they've gotten a lot more love. Um, so I'm excited to see Bast you know, gonna is going to be in Thor Love and Thunder. And I'd love to see maybe some, some tie-ins to the Mesoamerican mythos here as well. So I'm super excited about this. Yeah, I think this this might really work, man. I'm, I'm just, at least visually so far, I'm totally on board. All right, that wraps up nerd news for this week. Be sure to hit us up on social media with your reactions to these stories at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram. When we come back from our first break, we are going to break down Kenobi, the six-issue limited series from Disney+. Plus. All right, we're back for this week's main segment, better known as our ByWord And this week, we are doing a comprehensive review of Obi-Wan Kenobi, the six-issue limited series from Disney+, Plus, starring Ewan McGregor, Hayden Christensen, and Moses Ingram. As is customary with our review pieces, we are going to present three likes and three dislikes apiece to give you a balanced, even-keeled look at the series, not to focus on the positive too much and be too naive, but also not to harp on something and be too negative. So let's hit up our likes first and foremost. Dave, I filled out my likes and dislikes first, but I let you take this one because I knew you wanted it. 
Yeah, I think it's it's probably fair to say that the breakout star um, from this uh, particular miniseries was probably um, actress Vivian Lyra Blair, who is um, playing young Princess Leia in the series and is absolutely fantastic in the role and is very much uh, what you would picture uh, a young Leia to be like. There's a, a healthy dose of rebellion, quote unquote, already in her base character. Um, she already has a sharp tongue. I love that tongue lashing that she gives that her cousin uh, in like the first or second episode. I think first episode. Absolutely hilarious. Um, and uh, fierce already, even though she's very young. You see a little less dignity here and there than she will, you know, have as an adult. But you know, there has to be room for character development. She's like ten in the series, I think. Um, but like the roots of who she is. It, it, you perfectly represent it, uh, not just on the page and the writing, but also totally in the performance. So from top to bottom, I would say, like, if there was one standout in the whole show that I loved the most, it was probably uh, young Leia, I think, absolutely just, like, scene stealing in every scene she was in. Yeah, leave it to, you know, recent Star Wars to introduce a baby version of a character that is <laughs> well-beloved. They they know how to play the hits. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, she was far and away my favorite thing about the show. Um absolutely masterclass in acting from a 10 year old child. That's just absolutely crazy. Um, I, I love the, like the interrogation scene when like, I was just like, Oh my God, is this like Carrie Fisher reincarnated? Like it's absolutely crazy. And then somebody put a side by side on social media that ap- absolutely like ravaged me, broke my heart. Um, her little droid's name is Lola. And then there is a, an old photo of a young Carrie Fisher with her bird Lola. So like that, that absolutely wrecked me. So I, I, I absolutely love this character and I was so happy by the performance. I will say the only young Leia related thing that I really didn't like was the, the scene where she's being chased through the woods. <laughs> I, 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 I think I think there were some cool Leia moves in there and all, but I think the real problem was that in several of the shots, I don't think they picked necessarily the best the best shots. It almost looks like the kidnappers are purposefully like jogging rather than running. Yeah, yeah. It's it seems a little hokey in places. I think they probably should have taken a little bit more time to make you know at least that part you know a little bit more realistic than uh, than they ended up doing. But yeah, otherwise, you know, Young Leia was totally a hit. Ad Chris, what is your first big like of the show? I think as advertised, like it was the biggest pull for the series. The reason that fans had been clamoring for this, the reason that we were so excited to see Hayden Christensen return, it was Vader versus Kenobi, particularly the two big... Um, face-offs that we got if you can count the first one the first one is absolutely terrifying and probably the most memorable moment in the series for me is when he turns it around and he drags obi-wan through the fire um you know of course hearkening back to what happened on mustafar it was absolutely terrifying like it was almost like scenes out of a horror movie the way he was moving the lighting in that scene when he was going through the town and then like the flames, the, 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 the colors, everything about it was just spot on perfect. And then their duel was just amazing, amazing, top notch. Um, like I said, like the, the lights of, of the, the colors of the lightsabers, like reflecting on their faces. Um, just having Vader in his prime was really, really cool. And having just like having him wreck everybody was, was really awesome. Um, and then to see him brought low and then that, that final speech to Obi-Wan where, you know, inevitably you get to the point of how, how does Obi-Wan, you know, cope with this? And then, you know, you get the speech of you didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. And, and, you know, and so you can see all these emotions welling up on Obi-Wan Kenobi's face. You see like a masterclass in acting by Ewan McGregor. I mean, like, like, what more can we say about this man in this role? Like, a lot of folks are clamoring for a season two. And I, I don't know that I want that. I, I think less is more. And I think this is a perfect, like, outro to this. And, and I don't want to mess with it. But 
that's neither here nor there because the Vader and Kenobi stuff was just pitch perfect for me. Yeah, I will I will definitely say that Vader in particular as shown in this in this show was probably the most Vader that Vader has ever Vadered. Um besides maybe like that hallway scene in Rogue One which was absolutely fantastic as well. Like it it, it probably is one of the great palate cleansers after so many people didn't like how uh, younger Anakin Skywalker was written um, in uh, in the prequels that we constantly, it seems like, uh, specifically in Disney era um, Star Wars, we constantly need these reminders that yes, Vader is one of the all-time iconic villains. Yes, he's one of the dangerous, most dangerous, you know, people ever in the galaxy. We we need those reminders apparently quite frequently, um, because so much of what the prequels did with the with the character sort of pre-Vader transformation didn't exactly, uh, you know make us feel intimidated so vader in this was absolutely fantastic and i will talk about this more but to me the one problem with the two duels was that they felt like two halves of a whole like there was really originally only one duel and they kind of like took the two half two parts of the duel and kind of split it in half um and that's the only thing i really didn't enjoy uh it neither duel felt complete without the other half I, I and i'll make more sense out of this later when i talk a little bit about my dislikes um but yeah man vader rocked it in this all right dave speaking of which let's pivot to your second like which i truly truly enjoyed as well so i think this was an episode five um that was the uh inner cut flashback with the uh the practice lightsaber session between obi-wan kenobi and anakin uh probably around the time of maybe um based on the hairstyle and everything probably like right before attack of the clones or something um i i think that was probably one of the single most necessary things that this show had to do and i wished it would have done more more of it and that is to kind of rehabilitate the relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin before the turn a little bit. We're constantly told that in the prequels that they're really good friends, but we're never quite shown that they're really good friends. Um, They don't really have a lot of interactions in episode one. In episode two, they spent the bulk of the movie separated from each other. And when they are together, it's a big battle scene. Um, You know, episode three they're together at the beginning a little bit and then once again boom they spend a huge amount of time separated from each other we're never quite given the opportunity in live action to see their friendship and their relationship and so this one flashback went a long way um of of kind of seeing a, a a warmer sort of back and forth between them even though um I, I will say i just don't think that they did enough of that now i know what a lot of people online have been saying that they didn't, you know, DH Hayden Christensen, he's the 40 year old Padawan, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. You know, uh, I would say, yeah, I would say, thank God they didn't because I didn't need uncanny Valley, uh, Anakin Skywalker. I've had quite enough of uncanny Valley, uh, Luke Skywalker at this point. Um, and I think in the moment it worked extremely well. I really wished they would have done some like right before, right before revenge of the sith flashbacks maybe where anakin was a little older anyways um and then we could have maybe had a little bit more than just like a practice duel between the two we could have um had maybe you know some other interactions that didn't involve lightsabers (laughs) that that would have been nice i think having a few flashbacks interspersed in in each episode would have gone gone a long way i just wanted to see more of you know, their interactions pre-Vader. And one more thing I want to point out about the flashback. You can totally see in that scene how special effects technology is very different these days than when the prequels were around. You know, a lot of that, you know, core sound CG and stuff felt very, very fakey, very, you know, um, it doesn't hold up these days. But you know, even in just that one scene, how they how they made all that uh, the background and everything look, that new technology they're using with these giant screens and stuff, is absolutely much more immersive. I'm a very very big fan of what they're doing with that. It looked fantastic too. I, I will say, like my favorite thing, it's 
even more so than the, the specifics that you laid out. I loved the usage of that scene as it was kind of chopped and diced and, and displayed throughout the episode and like that nonlinear storytelling, which I'm a huge fan of. We'll talk more about that later. Um, and how it highlighted how well those two know each other and how it played out in the current timeline and the actions that was taking place on Jabin. And, and how, like, I know this is what Vader is going to do right now because I know his uh, tactics and, like, let me show you in this flashback what that means. And so not only was it good to see the two of them on screen um, maskless uh, again together, but it also was a great storytelling device. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, although that would have probably required a little bit of more work, I think it is possible to have these flash sorts of these sorts of flashbacks interspersed in every episode and have them tie to whatever is happening to Obi-Wan at the time, you know, um, and, and that way we would have gotten maybe a little bit more of that. I think that would have um, I think that would have probably improved things a little bit, but but maybe that's just me from like a storyteller's perspective. All right, Chris, your next like, s'il vous plaît. Uh, I really enjoyed Riva, and I know that a lot of people uh, had certain reactions, um, but I'm, I, I was really interested by the idea of Riva and just that trajectory, and I'm, I'm excited to see where she goes now. I don't know that, like I said before, I don't know that we need us a season two of Kenobi, but I I'm very interested to see where her story goes now and how she deals with the events that took place here and everything that happened to her in her past. And the idea of a youngling surviving and, and the PTSD and not just being like, um, you know, I'm going to continue to just be like a, a naive Jedi and only optimistic and only use the light side and all of that. And it's it's a complicated thing. Although the more that we revisit Order 66, um, you know, with this and Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor, how effective was Anakin really? Um, <laughs> so I, I like the idea of Reva. I know that you've got some stuff you want to you want to tackle later on, but just the idea as a whole and the acting from Moses Ingram was a huge plus for me. I will say I will say this, and and we'll revisit Reva a little bit later. I will say that Moses Ingram is perfect, um, and should be in everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there are there are reservations I have about the character. Um, that I will get a little bit into more later. I think let's let's just say that I'm not 100% thrilled with how the idea was executed, but I like the idea of this this youngling survivor, you know, trying trying to come after Vader. I think that's a really smart idea. All right, Dave, I could see uh, your third one from space. Yeah, you know, uh, isn't it about time that Owen and Baru come into their own a little bit? How many Owen Lars fans do y'all know? Seriously. <laughs> well, not, I, I don't think anybody bought the Owen Lars action figure. Uh, although maybe there should be one uh, available now after this. I don't know. I'll take I'll take a, I'll take a Baru one. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, those characters have always been treated, uh, you know, like an afterthought. I think it's especially telling that neither. Disney era Star Wars, nor the old expanded universe, uh, ever really lingered on the trauma of Luke basically losing his parental figures. A lot of people have been pointing out recently that he spent more time grieving the death of Ben Kenobi than he did grieving, you know, his parental figures getting, you know, barbecued by stormtroopers. Um, so it's about time that they get to come into their own a little bit, and it was very, very nice to see a. Owen having uh, this resentment towards Obi-Wan, especially at the beginning of the show, and having, you know, legitimate reasons to have that resentment. Like, you messed up this boy's dad. What makes you think I'm going to let, let you anywhere near him so you can mess up this boy? You know, there's a real uh, parental protectiveness there. And then that protectiveness obviously comes into full bloom when both Owen and Baru kind of go off a little bit in that in that last episode to try to protect Luke. I'm just very, very pleased that there is at least you know, some kind of giving these people credit, you know, that they raised a really good kid, uh, you know, 
you know, notwithstanding what happened in the Last Jedi, um, you know, Luke Skywalker is a, is a, you know, always been portrayed as a decent human being, and obviously that has nothing to do with the gen- genetics. It has to do with how Owen and Beru raised him, and so seeing them get kind of their their credit a little bit and and being more than just an extended cameo was kind of nice, and I was very pleased with that development. Also, and I left this out of my likes, but it was one of the things that I truly enjoyed about the show. Um, I also will include like those final scenes where he meets and talks to both of the kids was really beautiful. And like, um, I mean, we got the hello there. Like, how how perfect is that? And then his speech to baby Leia about her parents was absolutely just tear inducing. Oh, absolutely. Alrighty, Chris, uh, your final like of the show, what you got? I think for better or for worse, Star Wars is very like a big macro type thing. Um, it's very big swath, you know, sweeping ideas and themes. Um, and so it's always been like, here are the best people in the galaxy and here are the absolute worst. And the ones that always stand out like to me are like the everyday people. And that's something that was so interesting about something like Rogue One of like the people in between. And then, you know, and then we got like a a little bit more of it. I would have liked to have even more, but like, for example, Kamel Nanjiani's Haja, like is this like con artist was really, really cool. Seeing Roken and like this, just like this every day and like the early burgeonings of a rebellion before it's even a rebellion. Um, I really, really, really loved Indira Varma's character of Tala and like willing to go work on the side of the empire in order to, you know, rescue people and, and to, to, to good and, and being willing to go to all those lengths to rescue people. So I love the increased focus on everyday people and hopefully with Andor coming up, we'll get more of that. Yeah, I, I have my own problems with some of the characters uh, in the show, but I will say that kind of shifting um, towards, you know, quote unquote, regular people is something that Star Wars should be doing a lot more of. You're absolutely correct that it's always taken a big macro view and not really spent nearly enough time, you know, with, with, with regular folks and and. I think that's a big mistake, especially if you're trying to show the effects of the Empire. The effects of the Empire and the reason there is a rebellion has nothing to do with how many, you know, X-Wings a TIE fighter is shooting down and much more to do with the oppression on the planets uh, during that Imperial period. And and that's not nearly shown enough, uh, I think. Uh, if you really want to show how evil the Empire is, you need to show an empire that is curtailing freedoms, an empire that is, you know, taking away people's livelihoods, an empire that is imposing its will. Um, otherwise, what's the point of the rebellion, you know? Like, not, like not much. So I, I think that is definitely... There's, there's more to being an evil empire than having a Death Star. Uh, let me put it that way. All right, let's head into the negatives. Our first dislike, Dave, is what? I, you know, talking about th- that focus on like more regular people, I really like that. But at the same time, a lot of the characters felt like bare outlines, like sketches of characters. There, there wasn't a lot to, you know, make them jump out. A lot of the early quote unquote rebellion, uh, the path, I think is what they were called. Mm, yes. Uh, they, they were, yeah, they were all like almost interchangeable. Like here's the path with beard. Here's the path without a beard. Um, like for 90% of the characters, I couldn't even, I can't even remember their names. Um, even like the, 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 the scam artist Jedi. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I can't remember that character's name already. Um, and it doesn't help that a character introduced like that, which is a really interesting character. You know, here's somebody scamming people while acting like they're a Jedi Knight. I think that's a really cool character. You know, by the time the last episode rolls around, he's like, "Yes, I'm a good guy now." You know, like yeah. it's 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 Han Solo syndrome. You know, like you're taking a character that's supposed to be a little rough around the edges, and you immediately iron out those rough edges and make them like you know, blend in with everybody else. Like him in particular, I absolutely hated that there wasn't, you know, something a little more roguish going on there. Like I could have seen, I could have seen him not necessarily be a bad guy, but like showing up and saying he was going to help. And then he like steals some stuff and disappears again or something, Mm -hmm. you know, like that would have made him instantly more memorable of a character, you know, or maybe trying to, trying to scam something off the Empire or something as a way of trying to help the path. Like anything like that. It seems like so many of the characters 
felt like afterthoughts. Um, you know, if you look, for example, at, at Obi-Wan Kenobi's characterization, the reason that that resonated immediately is because Ewan McGregor played him in like, you know, three movies. And then we have, you know, Sir Alec Guinness popping up various times too in the originals. We know this guy, you know what I mean? Um, but I don't necessarily feel like uh, the show overall did a very good job introducing new characters. Even young Leia, uh, a lot of the fondness that we have for that character comes from Carrie Fisher's original performance. Um, so I think from a writing perspective, they needed to do a lot heavier lifting to make uh, these characters interesting and memorable. Yeah, that's interesting. And it ties into my first dislike as well. And and th- rather, I think the focus for me would have been choosing one or two of them and making them more fleshed out rather than introducing all of these promising things. And then, and then there's not enough meat on the bone. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably a fair assessment. Well, let's get right on in it, Chris. What is your first major dislike of Obi-Wan Kenobi? For me, it's the pacing. Um, and I'm not sure that I like this trend of everything being a six issue. It's not six issue. I'm reading a lot of comics, a six episode limited series. Um, I don't know that it works in some stories. It's perfectly told within within um, you know six episodes, and it's a tight cast, and everything is told to its T, and then we can say goodbye. But with something like this, and if you're, there are some episodes where it's very very slow moving, and he's just a meat packer on a desert planet. Uh, wrapping it in banana leaves. And then um, there's other ones where everything is happening right now, right now, right now, and everything is, you know, all, all in your face. And then the end result of that is you have these lesser fleshed out characters and you're left wanting more. And then before you know it, here's the finale. Um, and so, like you said, the the only ones that we have a tie to are on based on previous knowledge. And then the newer characters, I felt like the only one that we really got a good deal of development for was Tala. Um, and then her sacrifice meant a little something, but I, I wanted that same treatment for those other characters. So maybe if we would have like either stretched that out to eight or 10 episodes, even that would have been a little more satisfying, but the pacing was just odd to me. It was a lot of stop and go. Yeah, and I think that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, I uh, I recently just finished. Um, you know, as as of recording, they just released the last two episodes of Stranger Things, uh, season four, and so I just finished that. And you know, one of the things that I always appreciated about that show is that it flexes around a lot, like how many episodes there are in a season. It just completely depends on how much story there is to tell. And they don't they don't mind messing around a little bit. I think like the last episode, episode nine, was like two hours and twenty minutes or something like that. Like they were like, Look, we have a lot of story to tell and we do not care if this is going a little long. Like we're just gonna, you know, roll into it. And and Obi-Wan Kenobi feels a little bit like the opposite of that. It sometimes feels like they didn't have enough story to go around. I think one episode was like 38 minutes or something. Um, so I, I can understand why pacing uh, felt like a particular issue. I'm, I'm, I'm growing increasingly fatigued on the, the short, the brevity of these episodes on all these Disney Plus shows. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely become a bit of their calling card, hasn't it? Yeah, and and it's misleading too because there's ten minutes of credits with no post credit scenes or anything. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of credits. There's a lot of openings too. I remember I was like binging Kenobi. I didn't watch it as they were released, and I was like, "Here's your opportunity to skip uh, the recap. Here's your opportunity to to skip the uh, half an hour Star Wars logo." Uh, here's your opportunity to skip the opening. Oh wow, I'm already five minutes into the episode. Yeah. Fantastic! You know, like there's a there's a there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. I think. All right, Dave. So um, we touched on this before, but I'm really interested to dive into your thoughts on Riva. I think the release schedule of Obi Wan Kenobi is one of the things that ruined Riva for a lot of people. When you look at the early goings of the show, I would say the first two, maybe three episodes, the general impression that you get of Reva is, is an incredibly one dimensional character Um, to the point where she doesn't feel like 
an interesting character in any way, shape, or form. I mean, a lot of people kind of guessed, you know, or unpacked, oh, she's the, you know, she's the youngling from the first episode from that flashback. But beyond that, what we get is, well, what do we get? It appears to be um, an in- uh, one of the people in the Inquisitorial squad who's uh, got it out for Kenobi and is ambitious and wants to top guy's job. And that's about it. And that describes any number of bad guys, you know, somebody who, you know, is evil and wants to top spot. The nuance of the character doesn't come along until so much later. They really thought like they were going to have a huge twist and surprise us. And almost everybody who watched the show guessed a twist out of the gate. It would have been much more interesting to see um, a uh, at, right at the beginning, sort of her her kind of sneaking around her machinations and what she's trying to do to get close to Vader. And two, maybe introduce early on some conflict in her uh, of, of, you know, how far is she willing to go? How far is she pushing this? You know, she does something bad and then you see her in private and she breaks down like, oh my God, what, what am I doing? You know, but no, I have to, I have to push on. I have to get this guy. I'm one of the few people that can kill him. I can get close. You know, what we got in the beginning is so one dimensional that nobody was willing to give the character a chance. And the character is very interesting. As you pointed out, you have a youngling here who is, you know, fallen to the dark side, using the dark side, uh, not really bad nor good, just like trying to be a, the Jedi equivalent of an assassin. What exactly, you know, how, how much of this is pure revenge? How much of this is trying to free the galaxy? You know, there's, there's all these nuances to this character, but a, we didn't get a whole lot of that nuance until way too late. And two, by focusing on, on, on a very one dimensional portrayal, not acting wise, but on the page um, of this character early on, and then having this, um, release schedule of one episode a week. Um, people never gave this character an honest to God chance, I think. And so I think there's a lot to be des- left to be desired in the execution of what could have been really the breakout character, the breakout new original character of this show. I think they did the character of Reva and Moses Ingram, a, a huge disservice with how this character was written, especially in the early episodes. It's really funny, the timing of all this and the alignment, because my nerd commendation today has a very similar twist and turn at the end of the first season, but it's a much more long form storytelling. And so it means a lot more. And so if you're going to go short term and that's i mean like that's the crux of entertainment nowadays if you're going to go long form storytelling or if you're going to go short term like if you're going to go short term you got to commit to that and you've got to come fast and heavy with the hits but if you're going to do something longer stretched with like a 10 episode season or a 12 episode season or god forbid you're something like the flash with 26 episodes then you can play that out longer, but you can't, you, you got to nail it in between. You, 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 you have to nail it. You can't go somewhere in between. I mean, it, it, you got to commit to whatever story it is that you're telling. And so if we, they were going to go with this, I would have liked to see more personal moments just from Riva's perspective, completely divorced of the, the overarching story and everything. Um, And, you know, I think this is part of that macro ethos that Star Wars demands. And so I kind of divorce myself of like that micro criticism and the micromanaging of it. But I still think it would have been nice if we would have had some more personal moments with Reva. And I think it would have landed and meant a lot more to see more development from her. Yeah, uh, and especially early on, that's what we needed. We need we needed to get some actual development, and there was just it was so one dimensional early on. I was just very very unhappy with that. I will say that I am excited to see where she goes from here. And as I said, I would I would be all for a Riva standalone series to see her journeys and how she grapples with all of her emotions and all of her actions and how she deals with everything that's happened. So I think she's strong enough of a concept, even though it wasn't a perfect execution this time around, I think she's a strong enough character and a concept to continue to develop forward. 
I agree with that. I, I just hope that they they do a little bit more um, to to you know make this character a little clearer because I think we can all agree that everybody saw the youngling twist coming. Like this was not a surprise. So they held off on developing this character for half of the show because they wanted to hit us with a twist that everybody saw coming. Um, that was just a bad move. Right, Chris, what is your next dislike of the show? I mean, it's the nature of a prequel series like this when you have big characters. It was really funny. Like before the 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 season slash series finale, before episode six, um, there was a headline of will Obi-Wan Kenobi series kill off Luke Skywalker. <laughs> and uh, Jesus. Um, and so this, I mean, like you asked me, like, Chris, why don't you want a second season? This is because like, how much more can you tell this story? What more do you want from this? What more do you need to see? Do you need to see this frame for frame transformation of Ewan McGregor into Sir Alec McGinnis? Do you have to see that? No, we don't need any more. Like what more story do we need to tell? Especially when we know who's going to survive. Vader wasn't going to die. Kenobi wasn't going to die. And neither were Luke and Leia. And so it limits the stakes and the meaningfulness of the storytelling, especially if you're not fleshing out these new characters, when we already know the end result. And so I, I overall really enjoyed this series. I don't need a second season. There is something, though, however, that might work. So first first of all, I agree with you that... Um, there, there's really only so much you can do with Obi-Wan Kenobi. He is supposed to be an exile on Tatooine uh, watching over Luke. If he you know, keeps running around every other week in the galaxy causing trouble for Vader, then uh, you know, let, let's be honest, guys. Uh, he was never in exile, okay? <laughs> like, like, then there is no exile going on. Um, so at some point, the man needs to be in exile. However, I, I will say um, that there is a, a direction to take this that I think would be interesting and one that the comic books have figured out quite a while back. And that is to move Vader into a starring role. I would totally watch a six issue Darth Vader limited series. Um, make him the protagonist. We already know all sorts of stuff about Vader from this era. You know, he was not the necessarily the willing and obedient servant of, you know, one Mr. Palpatine. Oh, what a uh, great fact, final scene, by the way, where he reluctantly yes. says my master. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. You, you know, there's, you know, we know from, you know, uh, Empire Strikes Back and from Return of the Jedi to an extent that he was planning on overthrowing Palpatine for a long time. He was going to take this sucker out, right? He was go- not, not, not because he was going to be like, you know, undoing his mistakes. He wanted to rule the galaxy himself. Oh. He thought he was the more qualified individual, I guess. But wouldn't it be fun to see Vader basically running around trying to, you know, overthrow Palpatine, basically, uh, in secret? You know, do do the whole thing that the Sith do, Rule of Two style, you know, take him out and then take his own apprentice. Um, I would totally watch a series of, of Vader basically trying to take out Palpatine. We could even have a big fight between the two at the end, and then Palpatine laughs it off and says, "See, you're still my, you know, you're still my apprentice. You're not, you're not man enough yet to take me out. Try again next time, you know." Like you could have a very, very fun show of a Darth Vader show, and I think that is the much more natural place to go after this Obi Wan series than doing an Obi Wan season two. While I wholeheartedly agree with that, if we do that, let's get the show on the road, baby, because not to be morbid our beloved James Earl Jones is 91 years old and you cannot, cannot do Darth Vader without his voice. Well, there is some talk about them having used at least for part of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, uh, the same software that they used to make Luke's voice. Um, So apparently they're already trying to find a way to do Darth Vader without James Earl Jones. Yeesh. Okay. Yeah, there, there's a certain ickiness in that. All right, <laughs> all right. <laughs> not to, not to, not to play our hits, Dave. But your third dislike made me giggle. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly if maybe Brian Michael Bendis was involved in writing this thing because it sure felt decompressed. Um, 
And this is something I think that has a lot to do with what we've already talked about with, you know, like pacing and, and the characters not feeling particularly fleshed out. I think the biggest problem was that they tried to make a six, um, now you got me doing it, not issue, episode, a six episode series out of something that felt like it was originally designed to be a two hour movie. And there are all sorts of signs there for that. Um, for example, what I mentioned about the dual between Vader and Kenobi. It feels like this was supposed to be not two different meetings between the two, but rather one singular meeting between the two. And then they decided to split it up uh, into two separate duels because now it is a series. Like it would have made a lot of sense uh, if you look at like um, a, a fight as a storytelling device that naturally when you have a big fight like this that it's between you know you have Vader and Obi-Wan and then Vader has the upper hand early on burns Obi-Wan and then Obi-Wan reaches down deep and turns the tide like like that makes sense right and so it felt like those were you know two halves of the same confrontation um, and there's a lot of that kind of stuff wouldn't Reva and and all those like um Oh, early on, there's not a lot of characterization. Would have that not been a lot more forgivable if there was, you know, two hours rather than, you know, closer to four, four and a half hours total runtime? And you would have, you know, seen it one time sitting in the theater rather than having it piecemeal dragged out piece by piece every week. I think a lot of the problems with Reva's character would have been much more forgivable in a two, two and a half hour movie as opposed to this, you know, six episode limited series. So yeah, I think the sucker was decompressed within to an inch of its life to try to make a series out of something that was originally designed to be a movie. And it is very noticeable in places. Yeah, for sure. I will say one of the critiques that I saw of this series was just laughable to me. Um, somebody said something about how nerfed Obi-Wan is and how weak he is. And I'm like, did you guys miss the whole speech where he said he's cutting himself off from the force? So he doesn't like reveal his location. Did you totally miss that? And so like, while I see what you're saying is like, it made sense where he would like had to reconnect to the force and he spent 10 years not using it, but that was just laughable critique to me. It is a laughable critique. I mean, the I, you know, if, if you're looking at using the force like any other skill, which is something that uh, requires not just a lot of practice to master, really lifelong, if you're looking at, you know, the Jedi taking, you know, little kids and starting them out young, and then, you know, by the time they're adults, maybe they're good enough to be Jedi Knights. Um, you know, if, if any skill like that also requires continuous use, otherwise you know, that, that muscle memory goes away, so to speak. So in this particular case, for anybody who has mastered a, a, a complex skill, they know if they stop using it for even, you know, a few months, that's, they're not going to be as good as they were before. I mean, pl playing guitar, for example. Well, you and I, you, know, you I and I can attest to this as speaking a, another language. So, I mean, oh, absolutely. If, if you, you don't, don't use it, you lose it. Or, or I always tell this to my students as an analogy, going to the gym, if you stop going to the gym, for 10 years you're gonna be out of shape that is exactly right so uh that that critique never made a whole lot of sense to me chris all right chris your final dislike for the show the quote-unquote grand inquisitor one of the coolest designs in all of star wars and serving up a whole lot of meh uh throughout much of his depictions throughout star wars but particularly in this series so it was really cool kind of to see that design in live action only for him to be in a handful of scenes and getting washed in every one of them so uh the grand inquisitor was a big womp womp for me the Grand Inquisitor was a big womp womp in a lot of ways. Um, I, it seems like the character got a lot of uh, development in, uh, you know, animation. And so they wanted to remove him from the board, basically, for the story. Um, so, the, you know, he, he appears, uh, is seemingly killed, uh, and then reappears, you know, towards the end of the show. And that's about it. I think there's two... Um, Two things I think that we need to point out about the character. Number one, the guy is supposed to be an alien, not a bald dude in body paint. Um, it was it was very weird that sort of the elongated face was gone because that is a hallmark of, of his race. The name escapes me now, but we've seen his race in live action before, 
and the whole alienness went completely out the window like they made no effort to use you know more than just like the, the most bare makeup like the budget when you know uh, was probably uh you know two two cans of face paint from the dollar tree or something for this i was not impressed there um but also how bad do we all feel for qui-gon Jin at this point after this show because apparently it's quite easy to survive getting stabbed <laughs> with a lightsaber through the belly uh, the Grand Inquisitor survives it. Reva survives it. But man, if you're Qui Gon Jinn, you're 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 quite gone. Uh, I I don't know what to tell you, man. This is quite gone. Very very, very yeah, <laughs> um, very very odd uh, decision making that everybody keeps getting stabbed through the belly and survives when Qui Gon Jinn did not survive that. But you know, whatever. What do I know? Also, another anticlimactic ending. You knew the Grand Inquisitor didn't die because he has more story already in canon. So, yeah, that's exactly right. All right, Dave, overall grades. I know uh, we we ended on our dislikes, but overall, what did you think? I think it's a solid B. I think, you know, there were problems to decompress storytelling. The twist with Reva, that really wasn't a twist. I think these sorts of things really, you know, distracted. I was particularly angry about the Reva thing because I thought that was just a really, really cool character that was being served very poorly early on. And, and turned a lot of people in the fandom against her because of very poor writing. Um, I I think this would have probably ultimately worked better as a two-hour movie than uh, a six-episode miniseries. But what was here, uh, particularly seeing you know Hayden Christensen in the role of both Vader um, and uh, Anakin Skywalker again, the the you know the the redemption of Owen and Beru them finally getting their day to shine and of course young Leia i think those things totally saved it so i think a solid b is in order what do you think chris i'm going to go b plus to a minus um for me what i wanted particularly as a fan of rebels and particularly twilight of the apprentice and like the homage to the duel between ahsoka and anakin of like like cutting off his mask and seeing his face was really really cool to see in live action um, but the strength, the strength alone on the idea of Reva and, and the two showdowns between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, the, the line deliveries of, I am what you made me and I killed Anakin Skywalker. You didn't those, those put it, put it over the top a little bit for me. All right. That wraps up our Byword big talk for this week. When we come back, we're coming back with two more nerd commendations. Welcome back to our final segment, a fan favorite, to be sure. We're giving you more good stuff to check out and nerd out over. We call it... All right, Dave, the Blessed One has arrived. You better believe it. So I recently had... um let's say a medical procedure that sidelined me for a few days and being couch bound has opened up the possibility of actually doing something I haven't done in a long time. And that's play some video games. And I played around a lot with the idea of spending most of my few days on the couch with game pass. But then instead I decided it was high time for me to dive in to the sequel of one of my all-time favorite games, it was time to finally play Horizon Forbidden West. And lo and behold, thankfully, uh, it, this is a dual release. It was released on both PS4 and PS5. And since I am not exactly like swimming in cash, I didn't pick up a PS5, but I did pick up the PS4 version of Horizon Forbidden West and spent uh, about two days straight from sunup to sundown playing the sucker. And let me tell you, it is so nice to be back in the world of Horizon. It is so, so very good. Um, if you're a fan of the first game, I will tell you that it's more of the same. Um, if you're not a fan of the first game, I will tell you that there's a twist after the sev- uh, the first batch of um, you know missions that kind of recontextualizes a lot of stuff and opens up a lot of possibilities that I didn't expect in this game. And I'm really looking forward to having more opportunity, opportunity to play to see where it's going. Once again, the player takes control of Aloy, a survivor in a post-apocalyptic world, um, once again, on a mission to unlock the technology of the ancient ones, i.e. us, uh, in order to try to save the world um, as a 
blight, a disease of, of some kind, is slowly killing plant and animal life. Um, uh, and so she is on this mission. Yeah, the game plays absolutely fantastic. You're playing, you know, with with bows, with arrows, with various um, spears, with with various other weapons that are really cool. Uh, and you are hunting um, ginormous machines, some uh, inspired by. Uh, animal life today others inspired more by something like dinosaurs each one with their own unique strengths and weaknesses you become a hunter who has to use extremely uh, con extreme cunning uh and and strategic thinking in order to take down some of these ginormous beasts and of course the story is interesting and complex a lot of uh side characters return from the first game but on top of all that you are now traveling into an area known as the Forbidden West, an area that was repeatedly referenced in the first game where there's all new uh, you know, civilizations and all new enemies waiting for you. There's also uh, a renewed focus on combat in water, which you know, in most cases would actually scare me off considering my experiences with something like the Water Temple in Ocarina of Time. Like It seems like the water level is always the worst in every game, but it turns out here so far at least, as far as I'm into it, uh, the water combat and navigating underwater is actually very well executed. So you know, overall, I'm just really, really thrilled with this game and I can't wait to spend more time with it, man. It is to me, the creme de la creme of open world games, it is right up there with something like Breath of the Wild. Oh, man, I'm just so excited for you. I mean, this is something you've been talking about for, for as long as I can remember. And to, to see you enjoy it is really, really cool. It, it is the stuff, man. And if you ever, ever get a chance to play the, the Horizon games, take it. Uh, I know, you know, picking up a, a, even a PS4 these days is still pretty cost intensive. Um the good news is also that you know um, we we had now see a path forward for people who don't want to have a, a you know a PlayStation product but you know are willing to game on PC. The first Horizon Zero Dawn was actually um, released to PC, I think, last year. Um, so there there are thankfully ways forward. Just like any way you get a chance to play this man, it is so good. It is it it's so much better than it has any right to be. Um, it feels in a lot of ways like you know these. Um, the open world Assassin's Creed games, like Origins and stuff, it feels like something in in that vein, but streamlined. Uh, I think sometimes you know there's there's almost too much stuff going on in some of these games. This one is very tightly focused. There are no um, no side missions that feel completely superfluous or silly or like you know fetch questy. Everything is like very very carefully designed uh, i absolutely adore that none of the side missions ever feel uh like filler or padding everything plays a role in telling the larger story of this world in some way shape or form chris it's it's fantastic all right what's your nerd commendation this week chris oh man so i hinted at it several times during our byword big talk but um i'm recent i've recently been binging westworld on hbo max and it's it's really really top-notch um really tackles the best elements of what sci-fi is and the social commentary and social critiques and um, so just a basic synopsis, Westworld isn't your typical amusement park intended for rich vacationers. The futuristic park, which is looked after by robotic hosts, allows its visitors to live out their fantasies through artificial consciousness. No matter how illicit the fantasy may be, there are no consequences for the park's guests, allowing for any wish to be indulged. Westworld is based on the 1973 Michael Crichton movie of the same name and features an all-star cast. And boy, does it. I mean... You know me, I'm a sucker for acting performances, and honey, this one does not disappoint. Some of the best stuff I've ever seen, Tandiway Newton, particularly as Maeve Malay, the madam of the Mariposa uh, bar, is is my favorite character of anything that I've watched in recent memory. Um, I couldn't help myself fan casting most of these people as like MCU X-Men people. Uh, it was it was it, it was ridiculous how over the top I went. But James Marsden, Cyclops, is here as Teddy Flood, and it just makes you so livid as a Cyclops fan how misused he was in that role, and he absolutely shines here uh, as Teddy. Uh, Valkyrie herself, Tessa Thompson, is here as Charlotte Hale. 
Uh, Evan Rachel Wood is absolutely bone chillingly amazing. Uh, your guy, Jeffrey Wright is here as one of the primary characters as well. Bernard, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. I mean, like it's, it's like an Asgard reunion because Chris Hemsworth's brother, Luke Hemsworth is in this as well. But I mean, like it's, it's so good. It's, um, if you're a, a Breaking Bad fan, Aaron Paul's here in the, in the latter season. So I don't typically like to nerd commend things uh, until I've like completely caught up. But I've binged the last two seasons in like three or four days. It's that good. Like um, Ed Harris. How did I forget Ed Harris? Ed Harris is like one of those like people that will like give you the heebie-jeebies in a scene. Um and one of the that character reveal I was talking about before is Ed Harris's character, and it's absolutely just jaw droppingly good and and so well thought out and and so like the the critiques of like human behavior and human nature is so interesting and like then dealing with these androids and like at what point like the best episodes of like the next generation for me were data like at what point does he considered a human being or like having consciousness and like i think the measure of a man was one of those where he was put on trial it was really really great and this flushes it out to like the nth degree not with just one character but with an entire collection of them and so like this is just a really really great hardcore sci-fi series that feels like a lot of it goes over your head but like you kind of piece it together ever so slightly uh, as time goes along, but it's just a masterclass in acting. I know I've used that term ad nauseum today, but it's just really, really great and meaningful stuff. And I can't wait to uh, binge the rest of it. I know season four just premiered, I think last week. So I've got, uh, I just started season three last night and I cannot wait to continue this ride. It combines so many things that I love. I'm like a huge Red Dead Online fan. And so like that, 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 uh, you know, like the wild, wild west combined with hardcore, deep, deep sci-fi stuff is just a really beautiful marriage. And, and in contrast to what we saw with Kenobi is a much better job of knowing exactly how much time you have to tell and packing as much into that. I've heard that the third season drops off a little bit, but the first two seasons are absolutely action packed and starts off a little slow. In the pacing but it has a lot of world building to set up but at about halfway through that first season it's a wild ride non-stop until the end of the second season so i'm still excited about the third and fourth season but i absolutely love this series so far yeah i'm rudimentarily familiar with the uh the original movie from like the early 70s or whatnot um but uh, I've, I've heard you know good things about the early goings and then there's kind of a you know, divided um fan base a little bit on whether you know after season two it holds up or not uh but i've been meaning to give this one a shot and i just have not yet so i'm 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 glad to hear that at least the first two seasons are extremely entertaining and i will definitely put it on my list all right that wraps up another episode of the nerd by word we thank you so much for joining us on this ride if you like what you hear be please uh please be sure to uh give a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast platform whether that's apple Podcasts, spotify tune in radio amazon music or our fancy new website. Thanks, Dave. Nerdbyword.com. And of course, uh, find us on social media. We're always interested to hear your thoughts on our episodes and how we can improve and maybe some topics that you would like us to tackle on our show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Nerdbyword and individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. And don't forget, of course, that we also have a fancy Discord server now. Feel free to join us there. You can find the link on our website uh, where we talk about all things comic books, movies, TV, some wrestling. We talk about everything with our folks on our Discord server and we'd be glad to have you. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.